Welcome back to Shadow Light. My name is Larissa. My name is Zoe. And welcome, welcome. Join us as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. Here we go again. We've been doing some thinking. We've been doing some plotting. And at the end of last season, all we were, could think about and talk about was like housing, housing rights. Mm. Like how in every single episode of season one, we were like, talking about this massive issue and it always seemed to come back to being like, but the right to a home, like yada, yada, yada. And we feel like we didn't give it enough time to breathe mm. in season one. Yeah, so this season we've decided we're just going to take every single episode and think about home. What does home mean? What does home look like in different contexts? What homes are we fighting for? The home is a workplace. The home is a safe place. Um, what am I missing, Larissa? The home was a basis for community to grow. The home is a space of imagination. And just like how people who have been involved in movements surrounding housing, home building, you know, transforming our understanding of home, how that has influenced basically everything. And yeah, I just think, I think it's going to be a really good series. I'm excited to get into it because I feel like we're also taking it in lots of different senses, like from a home that we live in day to day to a home, like as a sense of community and like from folks fighting for the rights of their islands and so on. Like honestly, anything you could conceptualize as a home, that's what we're doing. We're stretching the meaning to its, I'd say to its limits. I agree. And also I feel like actually after doing like the research for this season and like looking at all of these different movements across histories and geographies and being like, wow, it's actually really hopeful because mm. It's such a beautiful concept. It provides so much safety and warmth and comfort for people that actually when you look at all the movements and stuff around it, I don't know how you felt, but I've been like, wow, like this is exciting. This is radical. There's like so much that we can learn. So I'm feeling really like we will be talking about hopeful pathways forward. It will be a hopeful Definitely. season. Last season, we got a bit unhopeful at times. This will be hopeful. Yeah, hope is on the agenda, family. We asked some of you guys on Instagram, like what does home mean to you? Which is really interesting because, like, I feel in a time when we're in a cost of living crisis, we're in a housing crisis in the UK um, and across the world, home can sometimes feel like a bit of a, like, hard concept to hold on to, especially as a young person if you're a renter. And that kind of was reflected, like, somebody said, in this day and age, I don't even know anymore what home is, which I found kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. and I, in a way, I can kind of relate because sometimes you're like, I don't know. It's not permanent, that's for sure, you know? Another one... A couple of people were talking about safe spaces, so a safe space to be able to come back to and bring others in, which I thought was nice. Oh, I love that. And then a place, a person, community, my estate, my city, my area, South London, a familiar place. Which I Another South really London nice. shout out, we love it. That's actually where we're starting today, so exactly. I'm Exactly, it's a perfect segue, so... Thank you to Simone, who's one of Shadow's amazing oh contributors, who also oh wrote... My yes, my sick. She also wrote an amazing piece recently on gentrification, which is up on Shadow Now, which is so, like, a great frame for what we're talking about in this episode. So shout out and check out that piece. We'll link it in the description below. But yeah, I feel like it starts us off with South London, so I'll pass it over to does. you. It does. Home. That is home. South London is home. Uh, I feel like we just need to play My Hood in the background right now. Shout out to Croydon. <laughs> Shout out to Ray Black and Stormzy for that tune. Uh, even yesterday, Spotify were like, oh, here's your little capsule for the... I don't know if you did this as well. But I, it was like, oh, what's a song that reminds you of home? I was like, My Hood, Stormzy and Ray Black. Like, you know. 
I'm always going to be representing Croydon. If we play that in the background of this episode, will we get sued? <laughs> Probably. Stormzy would never sue me, even though Stormzy came for me on Twitter anyway. That's a whole other story for another day, most embarrassing Ooh. day of my life. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we are talking about South London today because it really has been the home um, of some incredible squatting movements that have taught us enough about our sense of home, how we can expand that to be that basis of community, of imagination, of connecting the dots between home and what housing rights mean for our other movements too. And it wouldn't be right to be talking about Brixton without talking about the legendary Olive Morris, who is well known for her squatting campaigns, among many other things. But yeah, we'll start with um, our squatting babe, Olive Morris, if that's good with everybody. And we were just saying before we started recording, it feels so apt to be starting with Olive Morris because she's such an incredible inspiration. And when we deep how much she did in such a short life, 27 years of age, she passed. Like, it's just incredible. So I I guess I, I say that to frame that we're not talking about someone who um, had loads and loads of time. We're not talking about someone who is different than any one of us. We're not talking about someone who, you know, because I feel like sometimes it's easy to listen to these stories and think, oh, it's someone else with different skills or a different background or a different this, different that. But like, this is our good sis from Brixton, South London, who who was doing all of this. So let's open by talking about the laundrette squat of Rickson of the 1970s. So back in the 70s at 121 Relton Road, for those who know Brixton well, we know that Olive Morris and Liz Obie uh, really wanted to draw attention to the number of properties that stood vacant in Brixton at the time. Sounds familiar, but you know, we move. Talking about the fact that, you know, properties were being bought up, you know, people were seeing property as an investment rather than shelter. And all the while, there were people who were going homeless and trying to draw attention to what they saw as an injustice in this and what, of course, we do too. And so this court actually operated out of this laundrette between 1973 and 1999, which makes it like one of the longest standing squats in the history of Brixton. Why was this powerful? Because this squat was not just about the housing movement. It was also about using it as a base for other campaigns that these two incredible black women were involved in. And so when we look at things like the Brixton Black Panther movement, when we look at the Brixton Black Women's Group, and we know the incredible work that they were doing for black communities, for furthering a kind of black liberationist agenda... This was one of the, almost HQ, I want to say, but why does that sound a bit spiased? But, you know, it was almost like (laughs) this was one of the the bases for this work. Uh, And so it became about, you know, how can that stand as a bit of an advice centre for people? How can it become a bookshop? Like, it was almost morphing and evolving, and it was a malleable space that could be used for what the community needed in that time and in that moment. There, they ended up taking up another building in Relton Road at number 64. Uh, So it was about growing the space and and signifying, like, where there is space empty, we will take it. One of my favourite bits of this story, I don't know, there's this famous picture of Olive Morris that I've seen so many times in my life, but I never deeped what was happening at the time. And I was reading about it and... um, People were saying that at the time of this photo, there's a sign in the window. And I'd never read the sign. The sign actually says, 
This property has been occupied by squatters. We intend to stay here. If you try to evict us, we will prosecute. You must deal with us through the courts. They said, don't talk to me. Don't step to me. This is our space. And so it's literally a picture of her, like, looking at this man who I didn't know, but he's the property agent called Mr. Defries or whatever his damn name was. We don't care about him. But just saying, like, move along. Like, this is not going to run. So... Yes, this is the community space. And it's just so powerful to think that some of the most imaginative, most liberatory, most incredible pieces of Black British history and Black British resistance uh, and those stories that we hear, like to hear how this squat served as this kind of almost meeting point community space for all of that. So that's just a bit of a, a starting point for us to think about how this laundrette became this incredible hub for Black Brixton. Yeah, I think it's such an amazing place to start for a couple of reasons. And like, first of all, I think it's really interesting to come back to that concept of home. And like, so I was reading a, a an article called Our House by Protecting the Right to Squat is a Defense of Radical Black History by Lisa Insana, which is a Gaudem. Check it out, it's a really, really good piece. And just is talking about how, first of all, a lot of this was in response to the fact that there was a ton of stuff going on in Brixton at the time. There was like overcrowding, um, there was mass homelessness, a really like underfunded and like kind of racist council um, who didn't want to rehome um, like young black people. But also what I found was really interesting is that the local council policy had a policy that single people basically if you weren't a couple if you don't have a kid single people did not qualify for public housing and therefore the black youth young black youth who weren't in couples were like we're destined for a life of homelessness we're not even recognized by the council mm. and that was like a big motivator for setting up some of these initial squats which I thought was really interesting because it kind of brings together that element of you know radical black organizing but also like non-nuclear family like building spaces of family and care outside of the nuclear family and that idea of home not having to be like wife husband two kids in order for you to like qualify as a family to the council so I thought that was like a really interesting intersection of like motivations behind the movement and I think what we see in squats across Brixton because there was loads of squats in Brixton at the time it was really like the beating heart of kind of like London squat scene it was such a you know as you say before like a hub of radical black politics but also like rubbing up against each other was white feminists, white anarchists, early, L, probably would have been LGB groups then, but <laughs> like gay groups, all of whom kind of were rubbing up against each other in the sense of like there was conflicts, there was a reason why they were separate entities. But if you look back at kind of what Olive Morrison, I think it was her friend, Liz Obi, who was originally the person she was working with to get into the um, laundromat and squatting it was saying that, you know, they were introduced to squatting by a, a white women's group, a white women's centre, and it was a different squatting group that came in and helped them bust the locks and da 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 So even though there was all these different kind of, like, groups who were rubbing up against each other who didn't agree with each other, they were all kind of occupying these radical political spaces in Brixton and supporting each other, which I think is really important part of radical history in the UK more broadly. Mm. It is. If I'm thinking correctly, this is a similar kind of time to what was happening in the US when it comes to like the Rainbow Coalition and so on. And so we often know those stories, but not the ones that were in our own back garden for those of us based in the UK and especially those of us based in South London. I've been meaning to go to the Brixton Cultural Archives for a minute, the Black Cultural Archives rather in Brixton for a minute and just to really ground ourselves within this. But it's not only locally, we also have like this international framing for this work as well. I don't know if we want to get into some of the other bits and bobs that we know of where squatters are uh, have been leading the way for drawing us out into broader movements in a minute. But 
just to say, I also think there's a an incredible thread through from the work that happened in Brixton and across South London at that time, at the time of Olive Morris, Liz Obie and others, through to the work we've seen from Sisters Uncut, you know, as recently as a few years back. Because if we think back to 2016, which I know it was a great summer for many things, some great music dropped that year. But also we saw Sisters Uncut Summer of Housing Action, the South East London chapter, at least, I believe. And they had their like week long protest on domestic violence and housing and drawing the connection between those two. Uh, and so... They were using a space that they had occupied and were squatting in, in Southwark, to then talk about things like Islamophobia in the women's sector, to talk about domestic violence and immigration, to talk about the South Hall Black Sisters and why services are needed specifically for Black and minoritised groups. All of these things that we need the space to talk about, they were carving that out through that occupation. They even had Iftar, I remember, it was amazing and just so inspiring to see that thread through from um, the folks who were leading things like the Black Women's Group in Brixton through to like continued South London activism more recently, back in 2016. So just to know that there's been no end to these kind of movements in South London. I don't think there will be an end, especially, as you were saying before, like the cost of living crisis and everything. And nor so do we want it to be. I'm like, after doing all this research, I was already like, yeah, go squat. So now I'm like, let's squat everything. Like that. <laughs> if you, squat. Everyone squat. It's like strikes. It's like, it's just good shit that shuts the system down that people have to pay attention to. You know, when you're like, this is, yeah, net. Yeah. Net good shit. And exactly. I was I was just thinking quickly, like, did we even define what a squat is for those who might not be so familiar with it? I was just thinking. So uh, uh, uh. One of the definitions I... I <laughs> We're still warming up. We're still defrosting from the holidays, guys. Please we be honest are. So I've got the definition, like, very simply, is like the act of occupying an empty building or piece of land as a residential building. So taking it as your own. But, like, beyond that, there's lots of different ways to kind of understand it. And I think several authors who have come out of the squatters movement or academics in a way have described squatting as politics of the act which are contrary to politics of the demand so politics of the act are based on the premise that freedom and emancipation should not be asked for but should be built and lived creating alternatives to the state and social organization and i think that's kind of where we're coming at squatting today even though some people who are in squats might not feel that that's true they might just be like fuck i needed a gaff <laughs> like i just need someone to stay but because you're taking that space for your own, because you're creating that home for yourself that the system wasn't able to give you, that is political. And that is politics of the act because you're taking what is deservedly yours back from a system, from a neoliberal system, basically. Is there anything you kind of wanted to add to that? No, I think that sums it up beautifully. And I would just say that, like, just before we hit record, we were talking about the kind of right to the city, you know, movements in Brazil, specifically Rio and Sao Paulo. And thinking about like how framing it as something that people are entitled to and you know the state views it as a criminal act or whatever and it's often very heavily like policed and those responses are obviously quite racialized and so on but like seeing the act and framing it within our communities and within those who are local specifically to squats as well like talking about it as yes we are entitled to this like it says you know I was watching a video of a woman in one of the squats in Brazil who's talking about like you've said in all your documents that everyone's entitled to shelter. So we've taken it. Like, it is our right. And I just think it's so powerful to see it in that way of, like, I love how you framed it, the politics of the act. And we're going to look into that more because that is really cool. Of, like, 
yes, there's time for politics to demand, but damn, politics is the act, like, that's where it's at. Yeah, and I think the powerful thing about squatting is that it exposes the hypocrisy of capitalism bare. It exposes mm-hmm. the hypocrisy of how the system says it's functioning for us. It just exposes it so clearly. Like, it takes all of the norms, all the things that we think are of normal, private property, individualism. And this one, I really felt the need for institutions to organise collective practices due to the impossibility of self-management. So what that means is, like, we all participate in the system because there's no possible way I could, you know, run a housing co-op myself or be part of, like, some form of community living. Like, it's impossible. And it just proves it all wrong. Like, you've got all these examples. Like, I was looking at the Villa Road Brixton squat, where the council was literally going in and pouring concrete in the drain so that people couldn't squat in there, uh-huh. even though the houses were deserted. So this was like, you've got homeless people, you've got unused houses, and because squatting was so much of a problem, they were pouring concrete in the drains. And people were going in there and just taking out the mains and putting them on the front lawn and reconnecting all the houses up. And it just shows, like, the unbelievable, like adaptability of humans and how like you can make this space unlivable but we will come together we'll find the skills and we will make it work again and it's just like such an amazing example of like it proves to us that we we can do it we can live communally and we can make the resources and the infrastructure that we need to function we don't always have to rely on these massive corporations and governments to do it so ineffectively basically we have power so I just thought it was worth saying that basically and I just connected to that because I didn't know that that's wild but just connected to that I feel like the way that squatting is so heavily policed as well again it demonstrates like why policing is so harmful because if your job was actually to make sure that people are okay, why are you protecting property more heavily than you are actually finding a home for people who don't have one? Like, it's not making sense. And like, why is the state sending out and spending resources on criminalising people who are looking to create space and create housing and create safety and create community? Something's not adding up. So I think what you said at the beginning of like squatting just being a way of exposing a lot of the flaws in the system, a lot of the like, you know, those kind of trap doors where it's like, oh yeah, it looks like it's all right on the surface and suddenly you're like, oh, there's nothing there. That is how our society functions. It's like glossy and then you scratch and you're like, oh, no, it's not adding up. So thank you to the squatters who have given us this like vehicle for understanding why everything is so broken. And just on that quickly before we move on, like on that kind of piece about like this relationship between like the police and private property and all of that, part of what's amazing about squats, and we spoke a little bit about it before, but like they are really trying to build new ways of being. And it's an experiment in practice, right? Like how do we function differently outside of like the capitalist city? Like what does that look like? And in a way, it was innately abolitionist in a lot of ways, which we spoke about a lot about last season. But again, the Villa Road... Brixton squat, which I was just speaking about, which is a squat that was active in the 70s. By the end, it was a few hundred people who lived there. They've got this quote, and it was on Past Tense, um, which is an amazing website, which documents kind of London's radical histories. But they said, it's a conversation with people who lived in the squat, and it's like, would you have ever called the police? No. What did you do instead? Well, there were instances of theft within the street, and those were dealt with at street meetings. Everyone was losing their stereos one time. 
we eventually managed to catch this young black guy who I think was 15 at the time. And so he said that he'd been thrown out of home and that he had nowhere to go and he was stealing all this stuff so that he could survive. And so in typical Villa Road fashion, we held a street meeting, emergency street meeting with what to do. And we decided that we would give him a home, give him somewhere to live and we would give him money. And so he lived with us then. And isn't that just the most abolitionist oh, like shit? Like it's just like this is what was happening in practice. People were figuring out what do we do when, you know, things are being stolen we open our hearts and we'd be generous and we try and fix the problem, not the, the issue itself. So yeah, I just thought that was sweet to mention. That is so beautiful. Stop. I'm like, everything else has gone out of my head because I'm just like, that is so beautiful. Like, because when you read books, like we do this till we free us and it's got these like short stories of like what the world could look like. They literally did it. Like they were doing it. Ah, please. Uh... Oh, that's so beautiful. Anyway, you were going to tell us a little bit more about some of the, like, squats internationally that you've been looking yeah. at. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's jump over from Brixton to Poznan in Poland. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm so sorry if I'm not. I don't know. When I started the research, I didn't necessarily think I was going to end up in Poland, but I was so... It, it was just so interesting to me um, to learn about this squat called the Rosbrat squat, which... At the moment, is housing about 15 to 20 people, but historically that number has ranged massively. And it's been going on since, and let me even get this correct because it's been going on forever. So the Poznan Freedom Movement took the building in the summer of 1994. So it's been going for, it's been going longer than I've been alive. Oh, sorry, I've just deeped that as I'm speaking. Okay. Um. <laughs> it's still going now. Yeah. Come through, Rosbrat. And they're like, they talk about free houses for free people. And so, you know, taking up space, repairing it, moving in, but also then creating community through that space. And then they also talk about from the community to revolution. So seeing the squat, seeing the commune, seeing the space that they're creating as an alternative to like the rat race of the world um, as it is. And like how we can like model a different kind of society and like, not just residing there, but like using that space for like cultural, social and political work, which I thought was really beautiful because they're like, yes, the group of us living here is quite small, but the group of us who make this work is a lot bigger because it's almost become this like centre for alternative culture. And then, you know, they're saying that like the stuff that we do here, like just would not have happened in a commercialised world. You know, it's not about making money. It's about how do we support independent like cultural activity without, you know, relying on the state, without relying on donors, without, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, they do everything from, like, lectures and workshops to, like, concerts, exhibitions, festivals, just stuff that gives people the space to dream. You know, that's my favourite thing. And it's just within a context of a lot of homelessness and within Poznan, where, like, the Central Statistical Office was talking about no social housing being produced for long periods of time, like there's huge levels of homelessness and to have this space where people are saying, you know, you can live here for a portion of time, you can be a longer term part of this community, or you can just rock up for events and spaces that help us to like access something different. And the other thing that I find really interesting about this squat in particular is that they're very clear that squatting activism has to intersect with like other forms of activism. So particularly like Anarchist, of course, we know the squatters love an anarchist vibe, but then also anti-fascist initiatives. They're very connected with a campaign called Food Not Bombs as well. So just talking about all of the hypocrisies 
in our society. And then I guess the third thing that I found really, really interesting about this squat in particular was like the alliances that they've built between squatting movements and the tenants movements in both Warsaw and Poznan, actually. Because in what I was reading, I was reading this um, article called The Transformative Power of Cooperation Between Social Movements and Squatting and Tenants Movements in Poland. The authors were talking about how people from the outside often envision squatters as this like hyper political group who are super 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 ideological and they can't necessarily connect to but the way that like building a relationship between squatters and tenants activism was like a vehicle for people seeing themselves in one another and it was almost politicizing or more politicizing for those tenants who'd maybe been involved in a more short-term way in housing justice movements to see that kind of conviction among the squatters but also like reminded people of how they needed to create the language and the I don't know just make things accessible to people who didn't see squatting as something that was accessible to them I have so many thoughts on what you're saying actually it sounds like the first one actually I was thinking so much about like our solar punk episode last season if you haven't listened to it do listen to it because run run um (laughs) we're interviewing saint andrew who just is a solar punk legend and spoke a lot about like what's really amazing about like solar punk is is moving just from like opposing so fighting the situation that we're in now to proposing to finding new ways of being And actually as you were talking about this squat i was thinking like it is both it's Mm. it's fighting on the ground and building something new at the same time which i think is so hard to find and i imagine the reason why it's lasted so long is because that imagination piece the bit that's proposing new ways of being in a way, energetically fuels the fight to continue fighting, you know, like, the actual conditions on the ground. And, like, because that's a lot what Andrew was talking about. And you can almost kind of, like, imagine that's what's happening in practice here. And I I was reading about kind of this balance in an article called Counter-Hegemony, Popular Education and Resistance, a review of the squatters' movement. And they were talking about how, like, a lot of people who were in squats talk about this balance between it being, yes, a way to kind of literally transform what's happening in cities like actually transform the urban but also being a space about popular education and imagination and people who are on the front lines of some of the like biggest oppressions in our cities who don't have like they have to just get food on the table and shut over their heads for their kids or whatever by creating a squat you carve out space for people to be able to politically engage and politically imagine like Mm. suddenly if you don't have to pay rent that weight is off your shoulders and you now have time to also like it goes back to what olive morris was doing with, you know, the bookshop and the creative workshops. Like, suddenly people who didn't have capacity to read a book and get involved creatively, like, have that space to, like, really creatively engage in what, I'm going to mispronounce this person's name, Vasudevan calls a collective act of world-making. So he's written a book called The Autonomous City. Each chapter is about a different squat across the globe. And he talks about the squat as a place of collective world-making, a place to express anger and solidarity, to explore new identities and different intimacies, to experience new... I experience and share new feelings and defy authority and live autonomously, which is just so beautiful, I think. I love it. And I love the description of world making. Like, it is world making because you're literally modelling things that for so many people seem impossible. Like, it's just, that's so beautiful. 
Sorry, I'm getting really, why am I getting so like emotional about this episode? <laughs> it is so deeply hopeful. Like, and also like, I think I wasn't aware of like how many active squats there still were. Like mm. the, the deep connection of like so many movements that I admire today were like born out of squatting groups. And I knew it a little bit, but it's to like, to see how people really just like fought tooth and net. I think there's also something kind of like funny about it. Like there's something mm. jokes about being like, there's an empty house, we're taking it. And the council being like, no. And being like, you can't stop us. You can't stop us with taking the house. No, it is. It's, it's a funny. Bad boy move. It's a bad ass move. Like, <laughs> no, because I remember, I remember the summer of 2016 when Sisters Uncut took that building in Southwark. Because it's not far from me, like where I grew up. I remember thinking, rotted. Like they're just, they're just there doing the damn thing. Like, yeah, I agree. And you're just kind of like, fuck, like, you know, living in London, it's just like we need to just take all of the gas. Like we just need to take all of the houses. Like the number of empty buildings in that city is ridiculous yeah it's insane i wanted to talk about this 22 story abandoned high rise that is in sao paulo because boy when i say this squat was going from 2000 and yeah 2002 mm-hmm. and in 2022 they had a massive massive win that i'll get to in a second but 20 years this squat was going precious maya and it was essentially run by two like well, it was a movement that was under a broader, like, pro-housing front, which is the FLM in Brazil. Um, so it's run by the Movement for Housing in the Fight for Justice, which is, again, it just the name of the movement says exactly what we've been saying of, like, connecting it to the broader struggle. But the umbrella group, the pro-housing front, connects, like, 35 occupations in Sao Paulo with, like, 4,500 families. And so the specific one in Precious Maya... Uh, was just one of the most famous ones in Brazil because it was so badass. They took the building and it was like in a time where like radical housing movements were really, really popular because so many people were struggling to find a place to live and just really wanted to orient towards this rights-based approach that we kind of mentioned briefly. And they were just like, no, we cannot hold these two things, which was like, neoliberal urbanism being saying like oh yeah everyone's you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps get your place live your best life but individually though don't like ask us for anything and then meanwhile saying that like we're a rights-based society and so they were taking that the contradiction of those two things and saying well if you're saying we're a rights-based society then I have the right to this space and just I thought it was so incredible that they managed to house this many people but also keep the sense of the politics of the work and like one of the people who uh, was coordinating the movement within the uh, movement or in, in this video was saying that like it's a relief knowing that everything that we planted we're now harvesting Um, that was in an Al Jazeera piece on on this and I just thought the description of it as like this sowing of seeds was so visually like it just it's something clicked in me because I was like that is exactly what squats do it's like sowing seeds of possibility and then like one of the other coordinators uh, called Carmen Silva was like a house is not just a place to get in and lock yourself in housing is the doorway to other rights culture education and health and so literally just echoing everything that we've just been talking about But I just thought that, like, the Brazilian example is so interesting to me because in Latin America, the movements, and particularly now in Brazil with, like, the Lula presidency and so on, like, the movements have been so about, like, okay, we're entitled to this and we're entitled to that in a way that I feel like you don't see in Europe and taking the mainstream at least. 
And so to see people catapulting that into like mainstreaming squatting, it just makes so it makes so much sense in my head. I'm like, yes, because if you said I have a right to this, then let me exercise the right. But I know you were looking at Brazil as well. I actually just, I keep meaning to do the segues I'm supposed to do and then just getting so many thoughts from what you're saying that I, I have to talk about something else. Just even what you were saying then about like um, that organiser's definition of home, like it's just such a challenge to how, like home is a space where you encounter new cultures. Like how many people think like that anymore? Like the home has become so synonymous in the, and I'm talking here in the West, I'm talking here pretty much the middle class, you know, and upper class like Western nations, but like it's become so synonymous with like four windows and a door and only the people that you're blood related to. And it's like, when did we start thinking that that's the only definition of home? It's so limiting. And like, even from like looking at what home means in the context of squats is already so powerful in the sense of like challenging individualism, challenging this separation between people and communities. I just thought that was so powerful. And I think part of what you were talking about is this like this the seeds idea. It's like squats have such a like, transformative legacy and I think uh, the Kieran Yates who has recently written a book actually about kind of like home and housing in the UK which I'm going to try and read before we finish this podcast season so that I can bring in some of the stuff that they're talking about but they wrote a bit about the relationship between the art sector the creative sector and, and squats and the quote is squats at their core are the pursuit of a group searching for a home sanctuary is made by those most in need of it people urgently looking to imbue walls with new stories new artistic potential and sonic histories whether you've never really thought about them, lived in one of them in your younger years or passionately disagree with them, their very existence encourages us to ask questions about how we use space to instill community, friendship, music and culture. And I think that's so true in that sense, but also in like a much more concrete sense of like nearly every single case study I was looking at of Scots over history and even now have had such a radical actual impact on housing policy in cities. Like the way that they are a direct challenge to how councils run space and how they have to change how they're running things is like we have, even if you like are like squats, you know, it's not moral, like private property or whatever, you can't deny that the impact of squats has made our cities more equal and better. And I think that's something that's like really important to hold as part of like, this is a really amazing movement building, but it's also concretely transforming our cities in a more equal way. And it's, it's really important to remember that, I think. Mm. Definitely, because even like the fact of using like the rights based approach as a way to like hit back, it's almost using the language of the state against itself. Like, who would have thought to like switch up like that? Because, and and the piece that I was talking about, this um, article, uh, Rightful Squatting, Housing Movement, Citizenship, and the Right to the City in Brazil, was talking about like how that use of language has like transformed housing policy and policy processes in Brazil because you have these new vocabularies to justify those actions, even though in my opinion they don't need to be justified, but you know, when you're trying to come up against a state or state actors that are saying that you should be criminalised, that are saying that you don't have the right to be there, using their own language against them to justify your position in that space, how could we do that in other movements? Do you know what I mean? Like it just opens the door for this like new way of envisioning how our movements access the resources that we should be entitled to. I just thought it was such an interesting framing. There was also something that I was looking at, um, which was actually the same piece that I was just talking about in terms of like <clears throat> the relationship between the art sector and squatting, which I'm just trying to figure out what order is best to say in. But they, I think what's interesting about it is that uh, in this one of these pieces I was reading, which was that squats faced constant evictions 
which meant that kind of in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the squatters movement developed like strategies to make it really hard to stop them. So if you evicted a house, it would lead to like six more popping up. So it became really inefficient for councils just to keep evicting people and shutting them down because they would just pop up because the movement was really like resourcing each other, et cetera, et cetera. And so they, this piece talks is a literature review, which is like, actually, it's really, it's been really hard for councils to shut squatting down. So the best way to shut squats down is actually by co-option, is by almost like buying into the squat. And particularly the example that is spoken about is how, you know, if we look across Europe, like you can trace back, like in most major cities, the like thriving art scene was originally kind of squats. Like, especially in the UK, you've got like Tracy Emin and all of these like big profile artists now originally were like, can only afford to live in London because they didn't pay any rent because they were squatting. There's a couple examples that they talk about in Rome, at the Art Gallery Museum of the Other, the Elsewhere, started life as a salami factory. And then after being abandoned for many years, it was squatted in 2009 by over 100 people focused on housing activism. And today it's an art gallery in a collective space. And that's amazing. But in lots of other places, it's really played a role in creative gentrification of cities where art, young artists come and move in, they squat buildings, and that changes the dynamic of an area, attracts investment over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And there is a role of like, first of all, squats playing a role in gentrification, but also if the squats become institutionalized, it actually depoliticizes the squat, which is a much better way to stop the spread of people squatting in housing and actually is a much more effective way to depoliticize the movements that it's breeding. And even, you know, they talk about like forms of police infiltration into these spaces and stuff like that. And that's actually a much more effective way to stop the power that squatting enables, basically, which I thought was really interesting and worth thinking about reflecting on movements more broadly, you know? That is interesting, the corruption side, because I was thinking about, sorry, I said I was going to say the win and I didn't say the win, but like that is so connected because then what happened to the Precious Maya squad in 2022 is that it essentially everyone vacated so they can make it into social housing and everyone went back, which obviously is a massive win. But when I was reading about that, I was thinking, I wonder how that has shifted the dynamics of the space because to go from squatting to social housing you're in a different position as the community. And I wonder how, I wonder whether, I mean, I didn't manage to find stuff because it's literally only been, what, a year since that happened. But like, I'd be interested to see in like five, 10 years time, whether that led to other squats still being sustained, whether, you know, that changed uh, the way people felt about squats and the goal of squats. Um, Because, you know, the Poland example was clearly that squat is built to be a squat, you know, like that is the politics of it. And whereas there are other squats that are built with the intention of saying, no, we want to make this into, do you know what I mean? I think, I think they're just different. And there'll be people within those movements who have different goals and different aims because that's what a squat is. Like some people will be like, we just want to make this better. And other people will be like, no, we're, you know, we're Paris communing. We're like, we're setting up something like that we really (laughs) believe in and we want to make, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's interesting and there is obvious contradictions within it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I feel like I didn't really realise what the revolutionary potential of squats was before getting into this. And now I just feel so interested to see to see squatting everywhere and to know like how people are using that as like this I don't know, this um I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but they're using it as this force for like drawing broader movements and like I think we 
in the movements, at least in the UK, needs to do a better job of like connecting back through like how that has been done and how it needs to continue to be done. And like, I don't know, just that we also need to do the lesson learning from other places as well, because this just made me realise literally my first two stops were like Poland and Brazil. I was like, these are two very different like contexts. And yet I'm learning so much from both. And like, I feel like we could have kept going. I feel like literally any place we looked, we could have found these stories. I think you're so right in saying one of the most powerful things about the squatting is they are so responsive to the local context. Like it's not, you're not trying mm. to, it's a really successful version of like a flexible model, like something that you can take and make it work for you and respond to the urban pressures that your community is facing. And like, that is sick. <laughs> like that's so sick. It like kind of works for itself. And I think, you know, there's a few things I'm taking away. I think the first one is, and I, I'm going to go back to like the Brazil example. I was looking at an example in Rio where it was like in 2008, the national housing deficit was at 5.5 million residencies, but there were 7.7 million empty houses in the country. And like, just like that stat is like astounding right. how much the systems have are just are so stupid. They don't work at all. Um, an organizer in Rio said, that that's what started this phrase that they were using, if housing is a right, occupying is a duty, which I think speaks back to that bit that Ooh. you were talking about earlier, which is like taking the language of like the, of the bourgeoisie and making it work for you. And I, it really reminds me of um, the examples here where in London and in the UK, when the 2015 like refugee crisis, I'm using that term because that was what it was coined in the press. I don't think it was genuinely a crisis. There was a really powerful solidarity movement in Europe where both fighting like housing shortages, exclusion and racism in the UK, reclaiming houses to house migrants coming to the city. And this was happening also in like the Netherlands, in Athens, in Czech Republic. Like that is so powerful. And I think these are the models that we need to be looking at going forward. And I just hope like it's a cost of living crisis. I think empathy for squatting. We're not in a more time where we couldn't be more empathetic towards squatters. People are feeling furious on both sides of the political spectrum at the inequality that rural areas but cities as well are facing and that just makes you empathetic being if there's an empty empty building take it if that landlord has 2000 properties and they're not they haven't got one that's occupying it take it because it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense and it's a correction to a deep wrong and and so i think what is exciting is that we feel in like a potential for a time where like squatting could be really fruitful and well received mm, which i like which feels so good. true so calling all squatters future squatters potential squatters i think <laughs> um oh my gosh having informed about my accent i'm so rusty the only thing i can think of is like <laughs> fund the squats like literally just like yeah. give money like i've got money i don't need a i don't need a house i've got one donate to people who are like taking back the city for us. I was also thinking about the Goldsmiths Anti-Racist Action, shout out to Gara, who squatted and occupied Goldsmiths for, it was over a hundred days by the end. I can't remember how long it was because I really hadn't even connected the dots of it. But like, even just that, it was turning up to the events, it was taking groceries. It was like, do you know what I mean? Like showing up, being actually active in that, as part of that community and saying like we support you we stand in practical solidarity with you so if there's a squat in your area take some groceries well ask if they need groceries first but then take some groceries if they do if they've got events workshops lectures uh, film nights whatever it is going on 
turn up, like, have a chat with someone, ask about their experience, you know, see if you can get involved more, because, yeah, where I think, yeah, we can give our resources, whether that's time, money, energy, solidarity, like, you gotta do it. I think that's so true, it's like, and also, you know, some squats will be like the ones we've spoken about today, which are like beacons of community organising. Other squats will be literally people who have broken into a place to live and they will not be probably putting on film nights. They'll probably just be like trying to live and avoid the police. Yeah. And the two things you do there is don't fucking call the police. Don't ever call the police. <laughs> yeah. Leave them be. And if anything, try and build like like a relationship with them because like ultimately they're probably shit scared of the neighbours and they don't want to like stress you out and they don't want to have the police call on them and actually could be a beautiful moment of solidarity. So yeah, I think that's the kind of vibe. Either squat or be nice to squatters is the action. <laughs> I love those actions. I think they're doable. They're achievable. <laughs> okay, well, we'd love your thoughts and opinions because I feel like we just went all over the gaff today. We were like so excited to talk about this. I think we didn't even like stop for breath. And so yeah, you can catch us um, on our email is it shadow like shadow like podcast at gmail.com or at shadow.mag on instagram get in our dms comment on our posts like we'll be looking out for people's thoughts on squatting i think i'd really love to hear from people who've like lived in squats organized in squats like what your thoughts were we'd love to hear more oh i quickly i had some people talking from our audience about squats people like wrote in and i put a poll out on the shadow Instagram saying have you ever squatted and I'm obsessed that like 38% of the like the majority of the respondents have said yes and then it's tied people being like not for me and no but I'm into it so we're we're very pro squatting I love that we're slightly preaching to the converted here I think we are they probably don't more than us like (laughs) I love that people were saying what do you think about squatting they were like it's a fair response to an unfair system someone was like i've always wanted to get involved with squatting but all the ones they seem to be majority white people which is off-putting um obviously we spoke about this today but they were like bring back black squats we support you yes we support you that's the action bring back black squats simone came through again and said if a house is empty people should live in it we'll leave it on that note but we'd love to hear more from you so like the mic drop. Simone gives the <laughs> mic drop, email, DM us, and I think that's it for this week. So we'll be back next week with another episode to the home. But next time talking a bit more about indigeneity and um different modes of dialogue that can help us shape our concepts of home. Thinking a bit about settler colonialism, a bit about like the concepts of homeland, everything to do with that resistance through imagination and um yeah just really excited for that episode but i hope you enjoyed this one thank you so much for listening bye everyone see ya <laughs>